Hello and welcome to the Rocky Peak Young Adults Podcast. We meet Sunday nights at 7.30 at the church at Rocky Peak. For info on upcoming events, find us on Instagram at rpyoungadults. Enjoy the message. Hey, uh, thank you for joining us this Sunday. My name is Kelly McCoy, and I am the college and young adult pastor. I love you. And, um, and uh, you know, if this is your first time, uh, you are in for a treat because I get to talk about some things that are very interesting uh, tonight. And usually I get to talk about things that are interesting every night. But particularly, I'm really, really excited to talk about our subject tonight. You guys know that we're talking about lust and uh, pornography and masturbation and things like that. <laughs> that was pathetic. All right. I set you guys up. All right. <laughs> <laughs> These guys, there's like a group of guys here. They're over here in the corner. You can say hi to them later. They're not shy at all. And um, they said every time I say the word masturbation up to up to three times, they're going to say yeet. And now, now, I need to act like I'm cool and I know what that is. <laughs> because like if I were like, oh, yeah, yeet, like that would be so weird for me to say that. Uh, or like, you know, like, you know, dab on them or something or, you know, floss or whatever. You're like, that would just be weird. I'd be like, oh, blow it up. Yeah. Like that would me that would be like me trying to be cool. So I'm not going to do that. So even if I say the word masturbation. OK, we're good. OK, good. So I wanted to get it out now because it, when I get into the sermon, it'll be really awkward for you guys. Um but anyways, uh, this is a place where you can belong before you believe, and we like to have a lot of fun, okay? Clearly, we like to worship Jesus, and we like to have fun, and that's why we have calendars and, and weekend updates, and you get a text message on your phone and things like that, uh, because we want to connect with you relationally, and, and we also want to connect biblically. And so tonight, we're going to be looking into the Bible and what the Bible says about our sexual purity, uh, because we're in a series called Heart attack. And there are certain things that are literally attacking your heart because just like your physical heart, if your physical heart is bad, your uh, physical body is going to be bad. Everything around you is going to suffer. Your relationships and, and life suffers um, as a result of your physical heart. But similarly, your spiritual heart, which is the actual essence of who you are, the part of you that goes to heaven or that lives beyond this earth, that part of you, if that is suffering, then your relationship with God suffers and your relationships with others suffer as well. And so in the first week, we talked about envy. The second week, Joey talked about pride. And tonight we're talking about the enemy of lust. And so would you pray with me uh, and pray for me as we jump into God's word that honestly that I wouldn't get in the way and that your neighbors wouldn't distract you either. So let's pray. Father, we know that you're here. And we, we believe that your word never returns void. So even if I were to get up here and read your word and then leave, I know that hearts would change and life transformation would take place because your word is all that matters. And your word brings dead bones to life. And your word mends the broken heart. And so tonight, I pray that you would just do that. I pray that over all of us, that you would mend that which is broken and bring to life the things that are dead. And I pray that you would kill the things that need to die. We give you our hearts, we give you our minds, and in Jesus' name we all said, amen. About three years after becoming a, a Jesus follower, I felt really good about my relationship with God. I was like 17, 18 years old. I felt really good about my relationship with God. Not because of Jesus, though. 
not because Jesus died for me. It's because I wasn't masturbating. I wasn't looking at porn, and I was a virgin. So I felt like, wow, I get extra points, you know? And keep in mind, I wasn't a virgin because, like, I chose to. Like, I just had really bad game. <laughs> and, but it's all good because, you know, man's rejection is God's protection. So there you go. And, and I, was a, I was a part of a life group. And we would measure, like, our spiritual journey. We would measure our thought life based on how often we participated in these forbidden acts. And we'd walk, we, you know, we would go around the, the circle and we'd be like, okay, how many times did you do it? Okay, three. How many times did you do it? Okay, two. And I'd be like, zero. Oh, how you like me now? Make me a life group leader, right? So I, I, thought, I thought, like, I was super righteous based on my behavior, and my behavior would make me feel righteous for just about three weeks maximum because I, w I would break at least two of the three things, um, seeing that I got married as a virgin. But every time I messed up, it would leave me feeling a ton of shame, a ton of guilt and hopelessness and distance from God and my life group because my spiritual journey was based on a house of cards that was going to crumble every three weeks at least because it wasn't based on Jesus' goodness. It was based on my own seemingly righteousness. See, what I call that is sin management, sin management. And I was a professional sin manager for about three weeks. And I thought God viewed me as closer to him or further from him based on my good behavior. But Jesus interacted with professional sin managers in Matthew chapter 5, and he had something to say to us and to them about what it means to be right with God. See, in Matthew 5, 20, Jesus begins a statement. He says, he's talking about the kingdom of, of heaven, and he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, and, and the kind of people who are in the kingdom of heaven have a certain type of quality. And he was telling his disciples if you want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were professional sin managers. See, the Pharisees were great at keeping the law. I mean, they, you know, they didn't do the big three. Every, every weekend in life group, they had a big fat zero. But they were also hypocrites. So they weren't really fair, you see. Oh, this is okay. I'm a dad. You'll get more of that later. <laughs> but these Pharisees were professional sin managers. That's what they were. And Jesus had something to say to them. He said, if you want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, you can't be like that. You, your righteousness has to be better than the professional sin managers because they were obedient on the surface level, but they were not obedient at the heart level. See, they didn't do the deed, but they wanted to. See, Jesus is not interested in compliance. He's interested in your heart. And so after he says this statement that leaves everybody saying, well, then who can be saved? Who could possibly be saved if my rabbi and my teacher are not? And Jesus says, well, let me tell you. Let me tell you about sin. Let me tell you about adultery. Let me tell you about divorce. Let me tell you about murder. Let me tell you about envy. All the things that you see the sin managers doing or avoiding, 
let me tell you what they're really doing. Let me tell you what God really expects. And you're like, how can I be that righteous? And the answer is, I can't. That's why I need somebody else's righteousness. And Jesus is saying, here, you can have mine. And when we come to the topic of lust, he says the same thing to us. Starting in verse 27, Matthew chapter 5, if you would open your Bible apps, uh, we're going to be there. It's also going to be on the screen. But I'd still recommend that you write it or read it. But I'm going to read it out loud. And this is our passage for today. Jesus is saying, you've heard this. We all know this. You've heard, it, you've heard that it was says you, sh- you shall not commit adultery. Yep, that's the seventh commandment. Uh-huh. But I tell you that anyone who looks lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. Oh, really? If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. What? Yes, it is better for you to lose one of your body parts than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Man, oh man. The disciples must have been hearing this and feeling so bad, feeling so guilty and shameful. But I don't think that was Jesus' intent. And as we look through this passage today, I hope you don't walk away feeling that way. I hope that you walk away today feeling so utterly disgusted by the idea of sin and lust that you were just running towards God's goodness because anything outside of that is so undesirable. That's my prayer. I really hope that's the case after tonight. So the first thing we need to know about what God requires The first thing that we need to know about this enemy of your heart that is trying to destroy you is that you can just stop. You can just stop being a sin manager. Like, let me just take that responsibility off of you right now. Just stop being a sin manager. Today, you can just stop. Just stop. Hopefully that gives you some relief. Verse 27 says this, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. See, Jesus is telling the disciples that they've heard this. You know this already. They knew what Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy said about adultery because adultery was one of the two commandments that had no sacrificial provision. See, you can go to the temple and you can offer a chicken and a goat for lying. You're like, hey, uh, I lied to my neighbor, and I definitely coveted, coveted his donkey. So uh, here's a chicken, and here's a, you know, two hens. Let's call it even, God. And you know, the priest would just bring it in, slice it open, and be like, you're absolved. And then he would go off and hopefully not sin again. But you know, next week, he'd show up with two chickens and four donkeys. And be like, where'd you get these donkeys from? Uh, <laughs> let's not talk about it. Right? So, so, but, but when it came to all the other sins, there was a sacrificial provision except for adultery and murder. Did you know that? <laughs> you do now. And David knew that as well. King David, you know, the one who killed Goliath and, and lost to Bathsheba. Um, see, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, uh, you know, King David, he's like a really famous Jewish king. Uh, you know, all the Jewish people know what's up. Uh, he eventually committed adultery and killed the husband who's, you know, the girl he was married, uh, she was married to. Uh, 
So not only did he commit adultery, he also committed murder, two sins that had no sacrificial provision. But God shows his grace and shows his mercy for something greater than just a sacrifice. And David knew that. And that's why in Psalm 51, he says this, he exclaims, he says this in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, you, O Lord, he's talking to God because he's broken. He's broken. He's utterly destroyed by the, by the realization of what he had did. And God's, you know, did require a sacrifice because his firstborn son, David's firstborn son, did die. But in Psalm 51, he says this, you do not delight in sacrifice or else I would have brought it to you. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering, offerings but, or else I would have brought that to you too. But my sacrifice, verse 17, my sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite what? Heart. Oh, God wants your heart. He doesn't just want your complaints. He wants your heart. He says, God, you will not despise that. See, when David was broken, when David sinned, when David did the unthinkable, all he can offer God was his heart. Not more sacrifices, not more obedience to compensate for his disobedience, right? Because maybe we've done that before. But it was his heart. And, and David was driven to God's grace. See, when you are a sin manager, you're not driven to God when you sin. You're driven away from God. You think you need to clean yourself up before you go back into his presence. And when you're a sin manager, you want to hide but David threw himself at the mercy of God's presence and he gave him his heart, not a promise to never disobey. God wants more than compliance. He wants your heart, number two. Stop being sin manager, number one. Now start being a heart manager, number two. Start being a heart manager, verse 28. But I tell you, Jesus is saying to the crowd as he's clarifying, he's clarifying what Moses said. He's not nullifying it, but he's clarifying it and he's amplifying it. In verse 28, he says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. See, but I tell you, that's an interesting statement, and I love that, because whenever you're trying to convince an audience, which I will probably do today, of, of how important something is or how, um, how much they need to listen to you, usually you quote somebody else who's smarter, older, or more reputable, right? Typically, when you're trying to convince somebody in an argument, you say, you know, Bill Gates says this, oh, Bill Gates, yeah, or like, like, you know, you know, the American Psychological Association says this, which I'm probably not going to listen to them as much as I used to. But, um, you know, you usually want to quote somebody that they respect. But Jesus is taking a place of authority. He says, you've heard the Mosaic Law. You've heard the Seventh Commandment. You know what? Guess, who's, guess who, who wrote it? It came out of me because I am the Word. It was my voice that Moses was hearing. And so he's saying here, you've heard that. But I tell you, anybody who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. And what he's saying is that the root of adultery, the origin of adultery, starts here, in your eyes, in your ojos. Right? Lust originates in your eyes. If you look at a woman or a person lustfully, you've already committed adultery. And Jesus is echoing the first guy who, 
said it in the Bible, which is Job 31.1. He says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a maiden. And Jesus is already reiterating things that are already in the Bible, but people missed out because they were so focused on the surface level of obedience. They're so focused on compliance that they forgot where lust began. And it began here in in what you let your eyes look at. So let's define the word lust. Lust is using your eyes to arouse sexual desires. Using your eyes to arouse sexual desires within you. One commentator says lust is having sex with another person in your mind. When you choose to look at somebody with the intent to like, oh, I'm going to hold on to that one and use it for later, right? Like when you hold on to a thought with the intent to cause arousal. But I think lust has two sides. Lust is a coin that has two sides. The first side is, you know, like, hey, it's what you look at and how you are looked at. That's the other side of lust. It's how you are looked at. Because you can look with the intent to arouse yourself or you can look in a way in order to arouse other people's sexual desires on purpose, right? You can dress, you can act, or you can speak in a way to arouse sexual desires either towards you or just at all. So lust has two sides. It's how, it's, it's what you use your eyes for and how you present yourself. Does that make sense so far? And you need to know the difference between temptation and lust. Temptation and lust. Somebody say temptation. Great, that was pathetic, but I love it. I love you guys all so much. You're like, don't, don't ask me to say anything else. Because <laughs> you've already you know, said the M word like 12 times. Um, temptation. Just because you have a tempting thought doesn't mean you've lusted. Let me just help you out. Right, just because a thought flies in your mouth, in your mind, like, oh man, I want to have sex with that girl. Like, where did that come from? Just like, I don't know if you've ever had those thoughts. You're just like, boom, there's an image that comes comes into your head, and you're like, where did that come in there? Where did that come from? Right. Remember, don't claim every thought as your own. Right. We live in a spiritual world. Right. You are a spirit wrapped in flesh. Right. You are a bag that is holding your spirit. Okay. And there's spirits all around us. They just don't happen to have a bag called a body, right? And they are interacting with you and through you. That's why it's so important to have your mind transformed so you can recognize when there's attack from the enemy. So remember, not every thought that comes into your head is your own. But nevertheless, sometimes a thought comes in your head and you're like, how did that get there? And you can choose to make a decision. For instance, This happens pretty much every time I walk into a Dodge, Chrysler, or Jeep dealership. Every time. Every time I walk into a Jeep dealership. How many sermons am I going to have with Jeep illustrations? Well, one more. Every time I walk into a Jeep dealership, I think to myself, how can I steal this car? Like, it just happens. I'm like, those pylons are not small enough or not big enough to handle this gladiator. It's just not, it's going to happen. Boom, this is a Jeep. It goes anywhere, right? There's like, no way, right? And it just happens in my head. It just, boom. Like, that thought comes into my head, but it's not until I act on it, it becomes either a crime, (laughs) 
and I go to jail, and you like the first pastor, you know, who's fired for Grand Theft Auto, right? Like that would be, that would be horrible. But we're all one bad decision away from ruining our lives, aren't we? So let's just pray for me. But temptation is temptation. Unless I act on it, it's not a sin. Right? You may be tempted to do something sexually, but unless you act on it physically or in your mind sexually, it hasn't become a sin. The great reformer Martin Luther, not, not the black one, but you know the one who was like a church father, he says this. I'm black, so I got, I got cred. <laughs> he says... He says, I can't stop birds from flying over my head, but I can keep them from making a nest in my hair. And that's what it's like when you try to understand the difference between lust and temptation. Man, this is one more thing I want to say. Ah, I don't know. Maybe I'll save that for later. I, I have something I want to tell you, the ladies here. Um, when it comes to using your body, you know a fisherman, like a fisher, like somebody who fishes, you know, whatever they put on their hook as bait determines what they catch. It really does. And so if you use your body as bait, what do you think you're going to catch? You're going to catch body snatchers. And so if you're here today and you're just wondering, like, why do I keep dating all these guys that just want to sleep with me? Please, please take this to heart. Lust has two sides. It's what you look at and how you are looked at. But you can't manage everyone's perception of you. All you can do is make decisions for yourself. So don't use your body as bait. That's all I'm saying. And, and pause. That was my side note. Um, you know, it's also interesting. When we talk about the topic of sex and lust in church, it's really easy to think, man, God is such a downer when it comes to sex. Like, he really wants to suck the fun out of life. Like, like the Bible is anti-sex. You know, you, obviously, you read a passage like this, and you think, oh, there you go. Just because I think about sex, I'm going to hell. Thank you, Christian Kelly. Like, just another stereotypical Christian, but the reality is you need to know this, is that the Bible is so pro-sex ever since Genesis 2. Like, God shows up, makes Adam, and puts a naked girl in front of him, and what Adam does next is amazing. He writes a song. He's like, whoa, man, this is the bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I will call her Isha woman because she came from my side. God is so pro-sex. The book of Proverbs is written from a father's perspective to a son. And the father says to the son, hey, when you get married, I want you, I want you to be satisfied by the breasts of the woman of your, of your youth. And may you be ravished by her love forever. And he's like, whoa, dad, take it easy. Right. But I mean, that's in Proverbs. And the book of Song of Solomon is clearly two people who are sexually aroused talking about their arousal. Man, God has great has a great design for sex. In fact, if it wasn't for 
sex that God created, you wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for the passion that, you know, two people, your parents, had towards one another. Don't think about it. Um, uh, sorry, too late. Right? If it wasn't for their passion, you wouldn't be here. Sex is a great thing, and that's why it belongs in marriage, and that's why God designed it so that he can f- make society flourish. He designed it for one man and one woman so that society can flourish and procreate. And any type of sex outside of a covenant marriage relationship between a man and a woman starts to break down God's design. And what's best, not just for God, what's best for you, and you just may not even realize it. You know, the interesting thing is, like, the reason why I don't have adultery, the reason why I don't commit adultery is because I love my wife. And the reason why God wants you to, like, stop lusting is not because you're afraid of hell. See, for instance, if I told my wife, hey, wife, Michelle, (laughs) I, I say that often, I love you so much till death do us part in sickness and in health. I will let nothing come in between us. And the reason why I don't commit adultery is because I'm afraid that you'll catch me. (laughs) What? Right? That's not a loving thing to say. Right? My, the reason why I don't commit adultery is that the thought of that would just, it, it just destroys me. Because I love my wife. The reason why I don't sin against my wife is not because I'm afraid of getting caught. It's because I love my wife. And that's the kind of righteousness that God is requiring of us. Is that, is, that, is that you are compliant to God's will, not because you're afraid of getting caught or going to hell. It's because you love God. So the question that I want to ask you is, what areas in your life that compliance is there, but your heart is not? What areas in your life that compliance is there, but your heart is not? That it's a place where God has called you to. Maybe God has called you to education, and you just show up for class, but you don't give your best. Or you show up to work, and you just do the bare minimum, but your heart is definitely not there. You're just waiting for it to turn 6 o'clock. Right? Or maybe your heart is really far from your sexual obedience, where your compliance is there, but you're looking at porn. God wants your heart, not just your compliance. John Piper, I would say, is probably a mentor teacher of mine. He doesn't know he's a mentor of mine, but I I call him a mentor. (laughs) He advises six things, three of which I'm going to tell you now to how to keep your heart clean from lust. Number one, avoid masturbation. Because it doesn't really release lust. It doesn't. You know, you may think you're going to explode inside, but guess what? You don't need to ejaculate. You don't need to climax. Nobody has ever gotten even a cold or the sniffles at all. Like this, you know, you may think it's a need. No, you need water. You need food. You need a roof over your head. You do not need to climax. It doesn't release lust. And it's a gateway to other things. Number two, he says avoid sexual touching. See, intimate touching is just, <laughs> it's, you're on the road to lead to somewhere else. See, sexual arousal is meant to lead towards, well, physical unity. And if it doesn't, it becomes manipulation. 
typically women use sex to get love, and guys use love to get sex. So sexual touching is usually a form of manipulation, and it's also really frustrating because it doesn't get you where your body wants you to go. And then number three, he says, avoid unnecessary sexual arousal, such as movies, social media type things, and, and music. Because, and there's some things that are you just can't help. There's media that's just, you know, every time I, I drive past the boot barn, like there's old, like there's yellow and black. It's just like, there's things you just cannot avoid. You're like, they're not selling boots. <laughs> it's horrible. The action item that I rec would recommend is only do the things that glorify God. Instead of focusing on what you can't do, just focus on the things that you can do. Do the things that glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10, 30, 31 says, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So if you can't do it and glorify God, then you know what you should not be doing. If you cannot sing worship songs while you're doing X, Y, and Z, then you probably shouldn't do it. Just then sing worship songs all the time. I guarantee it'll help. I guarantee, if you cannot sing, you know, all my life you have been faithful. <laughs> If you can't sing these songs, if you cannot sing Oceans, it's probably not glorifying God. Point number three. Point number one is stop being a sin manager. Point number two is become a heart manager. And number three is run the hell away from sin. Right? And I say that harshly because that's the way Jesus wants you to feel when you read what you're about to read next. Like his audience was like, what? You want me to cut off what? You want me to gouge out, huh? My ojos? No way. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, stumble, gouge it out, throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than, to, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, and he deliberately uses right hand. Cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one body part than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. I feel like I need to give you a disclaimer. Jesus is not being literal here. <laughs> Please stay away from saws or sharp objects after reading this passage. There was a, um, a church father by the name of Origen who misinterpreted this passage and castrated himself uh, when he started teaching catechism classes to women because he wanted to prove to everybody that um, you know there was going to be no hanky-panky. Uh, and in case you don't know what the word castrate, that means to lop off your genitals. Um, and that's what he did. Uh, that is a misapplication of this passage. What he is saying here is that your view of sin should be so horrifyingly disgusting that you would be willing to Get rid of anything that causes you to remotely get close to lust or sin. See, it would be as if I said you had a cancer in your arm or cancer in your eye, right? Would you rather live or would you rather have cancer? You'd be like, yes, take it out. I would rather have life than live with cancer. Right, And so when we allow ourselves to lust, that is something that is systemic in our body. 
And so Jesus says, hey, kill those things, whatever it is, whatever relationship is causing you to stumble, get rid of it. Not because you're afraid of getting caught or you're afraid of losing your righteousness. No, it's because you want life more than anything. That The, the idea is that you have been drinking the fount, from the fountain of life. You have been devouring God's word because it is your daily bread and you will refuse anything that is from the local cuisine of slop. Does that make sense? And Proverbs actually talks about this very clearly. It says, like a dog returning to his vomit, so does a foolish person return to his fo folly. So the idea of allowing your mind and your eyes to rest upon lustful thoughts would be as if you were eating vomit. That you should have a visceral response at the thought of looking at pornography or, or, or treating another person like an object. Like a dog returns to its vomit, so a foolish woman or foolish man returns to their folly. And I've never seen a dog eat their vomit ever. And maybe you have or haven't, but in case you haven't, here's Mr. Snuffy. Or play it again because I don't think people. There we go. There we go. All right. You can... Okay. You hear that sigh in your voice. Right? But when I said pornography, you didn't sigh like that. When I said masturbation, you didn't sigh like, oh, my gosh. I can't imagine. But that's really ultimately what Jesus wants you to feel like at the possibility of lust. That you would be horrified, completely disgusted by this. And it doesn't make you necessarily, that's the crazy thing, is that this is how bad our sin is. So you couldn't even be righteous enough. So this requires you to put on somebody else's righteousness. And Jesus is giving you a picture. He's letting you know that this is that bad. This is that horrible. And you know what? Maybe I don't have a ton of application today. But if I can paint a picture of how bad this evil sin that is attacking your heart, that is so valuable. Your heart is so valuable. Trust me, there's a difference between you and your sin. Let me just tell you that. But your heart is very valuable, and the sin of lust is coming after you. But if you're dating it, it will have you. It will have you. Jesus is saying, we must be willing to sacrifice in order to be obedient. What parts of your life need to die? We must be convinced that eternal life without sin is better than our temporary life with sin. I like the way David Guzik says it this way. If part of our life is given over to sin, we must be convinced that it is more profitable for that part of our life to die rather than to be condemned our whole life. So if sex or sexuality outside of marriage points to hell, then what does sex inside of marriage point to? Have you ever thought about that? If sex or sexuality points to hell, then sex inside of marriage points to what? Well, sex inside of marriage is a foreshadow of the relationship that God wants to have with us, a complete union of intimacy. See, sex outside of marriage illustrates hell.
But the marital covenant relationship is supposed to be an illustration of the wonderful, beautiful union that God wants to have with his creation. And it's like every time a man and a woman inside the covenant of marriage have sex, they're literally recommitting their covenant. And it's supposed to be intimate union. And unfortunately, in this society, we turn what was supposed to be a covenant into a commodity. Sold. Prostituted out. So what needs to die in your life in order for you to stay away from this? What needs to die? I was talking to a woman the other day. She was uh, in accidentally in an adulterous relationship. Uh, she met a guy online. And, uh, you know, he wasn't honest about his divorce. Um, and so they were dating. They dated four times. And um, somewhere in the course of that, those dating experiences, she, uh, he came out and said, hey, I, I got to let you know something. And she's like, what? <laughs> she's like so Twitterpated. It's disgusting. Um, she's, he said, I have a kid. And she's like, it's okay. <laughs> you know, I'll be a mommy. And, and he's like, well, I got one more thing to say. And she's like, what? He says, um, my divorce is not finalized yet. And uh, we've been, my wife and I have been separated and in the course of the separation, she cheated on me, and now she's pregnant with another child, and uh, the baby's going to be born this week. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you need to run, girl. So I'm like, so she's coming to me, and she's like, hey, I need a pastor's perspective. I'm like, no, you don't. You already know what I'm going to say. You think I'm going to empathize with you? Like, you need to talk to my wife. She's much better at this stuff. But the reality is, is that this is something in her life that needs to die. And she wasn't willing to. You know why she, you know why she told me she wasn't willing to let it die right away? She told me it's because, it's because, he, because she loves him. And she doesn't want to hurt him. And she wants to be loving. And I'm like, girl, <laughs> you have been trapped. Because... Anybody who would have read this passage, they would have understood. Yes, I love my arm. Yes, I love my eye. But Jesus doesn't care. If it causes you to stumble, it needs to die. And it doesn't matter if you love this man or love this sin. Because if it's causing you to stumble, it needs to go away. It needs to be thrown away. Because your commitment and love for Jesus Christ cannot compete with your sin. You're going to have to choose one or the other. Good thing is, is that she chose Jesus, so um, good on you. So what part of your life needs to die? That's the question I want to ask you. What part of your life needs to die? The part of, of, the, of your life that needs to die that I'm going to share with you, and I'm going to build a case. You may not be Christian, and you're listening to this. I did some study. Um, some of the study came from uh, Biola Professor Sean McDowell, and um, he builds a case for why pornography needs to die in our society. And the reason why it's alive is because there are three myths that we believe about pornography that keep us addicted. And the first myth is that we don't think porn affects us. The first myth is that it doesn't affect me. 
Porn myth number one, it doesn't affect me. Pamela Paul, journalist, back in 2008 when she was interviewing a graphic designer who looked at porn frequently, he says this. When I found myself in bars and clubs and in social gatherings and when I scanned the room for potential dates, I'd be saying in my mind, no, her breasts are too small. She's not worth it. Then I would wonder to myself, who have I become? Why am I judging women like this? And the answer is, porn turns people into commodities. Dr. Gary Brooks, professor at Texas A&M, he says this, the problem with softcore soft porn is that it is voyeurism and it teaches men to view women as objects rather than in a relationship. See, porn changes the script in our minds. See, everybody has a script of how we should behave or act. Like, so, so there's a script whenever you go to the movie theater, right? There's a mental script where you're like, okay, I need to turn my phone off. I need to be quiet. I'm going to sit down and watch the movie. And when I'm done, I'm going to bag on everybody, right? So that's the script that I have in my mind, um, right? But, the, when there's a, but there are scripts in our minds about how we treat men and women. And porn teaches us that sex is best experienced outside of a marriage relationship. Which is ironic because the truth is people who follow biblical patterns of sex actually end up having a more enjoyable sex life. Number two, uh, the script that porn teaches us is that all women want sex from men. Three, women like sexual acts men perform on demand. And four, any woman can be persuaded with a little force. See, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much. It's that it shows too little. It reduces a relationship down to one single sexual act. Myth number two, I'll quit later. The I'll quit later myth. In a study done with over 100 adolescents, 72% of them says it doesn't affect them. 72% of adolescents says porn doesn't affect them. In the brain, whenever you, <laughs> actually, let me just say it this way. Women, you produce oxytocin, and uh, men, you produce vasopressin. These are bonding agents that are in your brain that are designed to release in order to create a spe in order to create a bond between you and another person, right? And oxytocin is released when you uh, breastfeed, right? Because women, you bond with your babies, hopefully. Um, oxytocin is also uh, produced whenever you. Um, have sex with somebody because you're supposed to bond with the person that you have sex with for the rest of your life. Oxytocin is also um, released whenever you hug somebody. And I remember when I was on a date, well, I thought I was on a date. <laughs> um, her name was Marissa, and she's a godly woman, and I thought, man, she's a good woman, and I'm going to hang out with her, and I'm just going to you know, use my sexual prowess to capture uh, the prey. And um, at one point, you know, I, I didn't know this, and I was young and dumb, and, I, and, you know, it's late at night, and nothing holy happens after 11, so curfew everybody. It's like 11.15. And I, like, reach over to give her a hug at the end of the night, and she's like, uh-uh. She backs off. I was like, oh, this is embarrassing. And she's like, I don't want to start something that I can't finish. 
And I'm like, so what's the problem? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. No, she didn't say that. She said, it's better to not start than to have to stop. That's what she said. It's better to not start than to have to stop. It's better to not start than to have to stop. And you know, I was, and I, and I knew I wasn't ready to date at the time, and, and she was not ready to date me, clearly. And, um, and I respect her so much. I respect her so much, even to this day, and it's been like 15, 20 years later. And so, ladies, I hope that you would actually have the courage to do that, too, because your love for God is so much greater than your love for whatever is coming at you that is not from God, that you would be like, oh, it's better to, it's better to not start than to have to stop. And I don't want to start anything right now. Because these things, these chemicals in our brains, that God, God has created us to actually bond with another person. I mean, ever since Genesis 1, right? The only thing that was in the garden that was not good, it was man's loneliness. And it's usually our loneliness that is mis, you know, misapplied that leads us into harmful relationships. So I get it. But God will provide. And it's our job to trust him. And if we keep tricking our brains into bonding with polka dots with pixels on a screen, it's going to mess us up and it's going to teach us three things that are very harmful. First, it will teach us that a real woman is not good enough. Second, it'll teach us that one woman is not good enough. And three, it'll teach you that your wife's body is not good enough or your husband's body is not good enough because over 30% of women are looking at porn as well. So it's a lie to think that you'll quit later. Because you're already being addicted, especially now. Because your brains are not even fully, fully developing or functioning in some cases until your late 20s, early 30s. One more thing. I was talking to Krista earlier about the addictive patterns of pornography. And, you know, if you were, like, smoking crack, which I hope you, you don't, but if you do, this is a place where you can belong. Like, it takes a little bit of crack to get this kind of high, but eventually, it takes more crack to get the same kind of high or even less. And eventually, you have to take more of the same substance to get the same effect. So far, so good. Are you tracking with me? This is called chemical dependency. But not so with pornography. See, more porn doesn't make you more satisfied. More porn doesn't make you, more of the same porn doesn't make you satisfied. And that's what makes it so dangerous because it's not the, the amount of porn that you consume. It's the variety of porn that you consume because your brain gets bored and you need something different and something different and something different until, it, until you find yourself trapped in a child pornography problem. See, pornography is a vehicle that employs, well, sex slavery. And every time you look at porn, you are supporting a vehicle that hurts a lot of people, which is the last myth. I'm not hurting anyone. See, we think we're not hurting anyone when we look at pornography or participate in it, but you're actually supporting a vehicle that is hurting a lot of people, and it's changing the way society views women and men. There was a study by Anna Bridges. And what she did was really interesting. 
Uh, I probably couldn't be in this study unless I was on the right side. But she partnered women with men in a high-stress task after she put half the men in a room and watched news reports, and the other half of the men watched pornography, and then sent them out to do a high-stress task with women. Like, ladies, like, how crazy would that be if you didn't know the guy you were hanging out with just finished watching porn two seconds ago? And this is what she found. Experimenters found that men who viewed porn showed more dominant behavior, touched their female partners for longer periods of time, and ignored their partners' contributions more often than the males who viewed the news. Don't think that your porn is not affecting the way you treat each other, because it is. Every sin hurts somebody. It hurts others, and it hurts God. If you look at pornography, you are indirectly participating in vehicles that objectify men and women all around you. So those are the three myths. I'm hoping that by sharing this with you, I'm just creating a case for how disgusting this is. That, that your desire to look at porn is not only if you can't get caught, it's just your desire for goodness is that much greater. It's not that you, you don't lie because you're, you're afraid of getting caught in a lie. No, you don't lie because you love the truth. Same thing with sexuality or sex outside of marriage. Is you want to protect what is sacred and you want to honor God because you love him. You're not necessarily afraid of going to hell. You just don't want to compromise your love relationship with God. So as we conclude, this is what I want you to know. Number one, stop being a sin manager. Number two, stop managing or start managing your own heart. And number three, run the hell away from sin. It's not worth it. My prayer is that you would be so fulfilled by the living water that you will be disgusted by the buffet of the world. But there's four things that you can do right now. Transfer your actions. Transfer the action to Christ. Whenever that tempting thought, you can transfer your action to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we demolish every stronghold or every, every thought or every argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to who? Christ. I want to encourage you. And when tempted, you can say this. Just say this, all right? I'll, you might want to write this down. If not, I'll, write, I'll send you this prayer. Say, Jesus, it's there. I acknowledge that you are the Lord and God of my life. My greatest desire is to love and obey and honor you. I give you this desire, and I thank you for delivering me from the bondage of sin every time. You take that thought, you make it obedient to Christ, and you just thank God for delivering you from this stronghold or this slave. Well, it would be a slave master in that case. And pray for a new affection. Number two, bathe your mind in God's word every day. Bathe your mind. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, if your mind is saturated with God's word, there won't be enough room for Satan to put other thoughts in there. So bathe your mind in God's word. Number three, think about all people in view of eternity. Think about all people in view of eternity. 
It's not easy to fantasize about someone who you know is going to hell. You just can't. It's like, ooh, that's kind of awkward, right? Like you just can't fantasize about somebody when you think about their eternal destiny. And number four, resolve to seek the kingdom first. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousnesses and all these things that you want, your loneliness fulfilled, your sexual desires satisfied, all these things will be added to you if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. So you should ask the question, what does the kingdom need from my body today? How can I use my body, the members of my body, to serve the kingdom? And God will take care of the rest. As we invite the band up, I want to pray for us. My prayer is that you would be people who seek God's kingdom and his glory forever. I love that 1 Corinthians 10.31. I want to remind you this. I said this passage earlier. It's about seeking God's glory. It says, whatever, whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whoever you date, whatever you listen to, whatever you're watching, do it all to the glory of God. Can we be that kind of people that we're more focused on God's glory than sin management? That we're more focused on giving God our heart than giving God our compliance? That the things that we do, our whole heart is there. What would it look like? What would it look like if we were a people who are 100% committed to bringing God's glory in every situation, every relationship, not because we were afraid, but because we were so thankful and because we were in love with God and we want to love people and we saw people in light of their eternal destiny instead of commodities that the world tries to throw out at us. And we looked at sex as a covenant, not as a product that was bought and sold. What would it look like if we elevated every single man, woman, and child around us and we saw them as God's children? And instead of using them to serve us, we were committed to serving them and the world around us. Let's pray. Father, Father, we choose to seek you first in your righteousness and we trust you that you'll take care of the rest. You'll take, of our, you'll take care of our hopes and dreams and desires to maybe be married or have kids someday. We'll just trust you. Whether that happens in our life or not, we know that you'll fulfill our greatest desires because our greatest desires are not fulfilled on a, on a TV screen, on a computer screen, or even in a family, or even in, even in another person, or even in our own quietness. Our deepest desires are not fulfilled by anyone but you. So we come to you, Lord, and we say thank you. And we trust you. And we say, Lord, we've had desires. We've had thoughts. Protect us. Saturate us with your word so that there's no room for the evil one to have a foothold in our life. And then we thank you, Lord. We thank you for protecting us and delivering us from the bondage of sin so that we have the strength and the courage to listen and follow and to say no to the evil one and say yes to you, Lord. Father, you say pre present our members to you, holy and glorifying. So, Father, we ask, Father, that you use our, use our eyes to glorify you. 
that we would see life the way you see it, that you would use our mouth to glorify you, that we would speak the words of God to the people around us and give love where it needs to be given. And that we give you our hands, we give you our arms, and we say, Father, we will serve, we will give. Where you've called us to give and serve. I pray, Father, we give you our body parts. And we say, Father, we commit it to your glory right now. That, they, that it would be used as a symbol of the relationship that you desire with humanity in a covenant committed eternal forever binding we give you our feet and we say Lord we'll go wherever you want us to go not under not under compulsion but under the covenant that you've made with us and we thank you we thank you so much with every body part we thank you with every extremity we thank you with every thought we thank you not on our own efforts father we just know that it's the righteousness of Christ that allows us the possibility to come into your presence and give everything that you've given us just back have your will be done your kingdom come in our body as it is in heaven. And in Jesus' name he said, amen.